Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new or visiting. And as always, if there are any questions you may have, any comments, any concerns about what you hear here, about the gospel, about the church, anything, please talk to myself or to any one of the other elders after service. I think Ben's back there. If you could raise your hand, Ben, he's an elder. Uh, Pastor Dave was up here. So just find any one of us, and, and please feel free to talk to us or send us an email. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3 verses 21 through 38 is our passage this morning. That passage can be found on page 859 if you are using a church Bible, page 859. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, we come before you, and we are thankful that, that we can worship you so freely and so safely, and, and we know that that is not the case with many of our brothers and sisters around the world. We pray especially for the people in Afghanistan and the people in Haiti. We pray for a physical protection and provision. We, we ask that you would show forth your mercy. We beg you, God. Even more than that, we pray for a spiritual provision and a strengthened faith among your children that, that in the midst of all of this turmoil, uh, somehow your people would come to love you even more and that your gospel would advance and that eyes would be opened and dead hearts awakened, that your coming and perfect kingdom would be all the more hoped for. Please, O oh God, would you be a rock and a fortress for your people, that our ultimate hope would not be in world power or in politics, but more and more in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for our church family here that you would show us ways in which we can help and pray, and, and would you awaken us, God, more and more to remind us that this world is not our home. Would you teach us to number our days and give to us hearts of wisdom? And, and right now, God, using your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, would you show us the exceeding supremacy of Jesus Christ? Would you save souls and make us more like your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. In the opening chapters of his book, Luke has been interweaving the narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. John the Baptist's conception is supernatural that an old, barren couple who couldn't have any children, that they would give birth to the prophet, that is a miracle. And Jesus' conception, more supernatural, that a virgin woman who had never known a man would conceive and give birth to the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. That's a greater miracle. The angel's message about John, he will be great before the Lord and turn many people to God and turn many people towards each other, reconciliation. The very same angel's message about Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the Davidic throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. We have the great and the greater. At John's birth, his entire neighborhood is amazed and filled with wonder as they recognize that the hand of the Lord is with this baby, asking the question in their hearts, what then will this child be? 
because already from birth, they knew that he was different. At Jesus' birth, the entire heavenly host of angels, surrounded by the blazing glory of Yahweh, break into the midnight sky, singing praise to God. They knew he was different, differenter. This interweaving of these two men is intentional to contrast the great one with the even greater one. And it is most recently that we've looked at the ministry of John the Baptist. This fiery, unashamed preacher in the wilderness, this herald for the coming king, and the message in his mouth is that the way you prepare for the greater one to come is with repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness symbolized in his baptism. And the reason, because the coming Messiah has a winnowing fork in his hands, and he's going to separate the world, split the world into wheat and chaff. And every person will either be baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit or be baptized and immersed in the fires of judgment. There is no middle ground. You may think my baptism is something. There is a greater baptism to come conducted by the mightier one to come. Jesus preached this message indiscriminately and without fear, and that landed him in prison, and that made him get beheaded. But John's ministry to the crowds thousands upon thousands from all places and all walks of life would come to listen and hang on every single word that came out of his mouth and stand in long lines to be baptized into repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to prepare for this coming one. And the people were so impressed by the magnitude of his ministry that they thought maybe John the Baptist is the greater one to come, to which he responded, listen, I'm not even of a high enough caliber to be the lowest slave to loosen the dirty thong of the coming one's slipper. You think, I am great? The coming one, the greater one, he's great, he's mightier, and he is coming very soon. And it is in our text that we get introduced to this coming king whom John the Baptist has been heralding now that the Messiah is of age. And the interweaving that Luke has been accomplishing between these two men, we see it in this text as well. And this introduction to this adult Jesus is not what the reader might expect. We read in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We see first here Jesus is identifying with the crowds. We find the greater one to come, the one with the might to divide the world into two groups and baptize them with a greater and more decisive baptism. We find the one with a winnowing fork in his hand and he is way at the back of the baptism line. He is at the rear of a line for a baptism intended for sinful people. This is the one without sin. And Jesus, the Messiah, the great and promised deliverer, he doesn't even have the front of the line pass. It's as if his eyes want to take in every single person before him, confessing and repenting sin and hoping for their forgiveness and with his ears to hear of their very remorse over their iniquity before he decides to make his appearance. Jesus is at the end of the line with no ostentatious show. In fact, if you were here, you wouldn't even know that the Messiah had come. 
We live in a world where most kings and rulers and leaders can so easily lose sight of the common people because of their high and lofty status. They're not usually found on the front lines. They make their decisions from their thrones and their offices and their boardrooms. They are not boots on the ground. They're too important. They might get hurt. They're too valuable to put in harm's way. And so it, there is this separation. And they may have once been with the people, but over the years, that disconnect becomes greater and greater the higher their position becomes. They can get so easily to a point where they can't identify any longer. And so when John the Baptist, with thousands upon thousands, hanging on his every word and multitudes of people hanging, exalting his name, when a man like John says, I ain't nothing compared to the mightier one to come, you would expect that the mightier one to come would come with a royal entrance and a massive entourage with armed guards, maybe six of them holding up the king on their shoulders on a platform so that he might be more readily able to be seen that there would be this massive distinction and even a disconnect between the commoner and the Messiah. But that is not the case here at all. All the hype and all the heralding and all the imagery of the winnowing fork and the baptism of spirit and fire finds its peak with the Messiah literally indistinguishable from the sinful crowd. Why does Jesus get baptized into a baptism meant for sinners? when he himself has no sin to be repented of. Because, church family, the Son of God has come to identify himself with you at the very ground level. The eternal Son chooses to become a human himself and in his baptism associate himself with a sinful humanity. Front lines, boots on the ground. Hebrews 2, 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus willingly becomes like us so that he can save us. And what we have here in Jesus' baptism at the end of the line is his deliberate decision to join with us, to identify with us, to be one of us, to understand us and know more and more intimately our need to be forgiven. This is an act of solidarity that he would be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12, that the king eternal and the Lord immortal would be willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners might be saved. The ones who know that they're wrong, the ones who know that they need help, who know I need cleansing, and are repenting and know that we need forgiveness and know that we are needy and we have nothing to offer, really. We find the king among all of them. And if you're here this morning and you think, I don't know how a good God could ever forgive someone like me or ever want to know or ever want to be a part of a life like mine, it is in Jesus' baptism here with the crowd of sinful people with him that you have your answer. Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge of the universe. He is a mightier one to come. 
Nothing that John has preached is false, but here Jesus is first baptized and immersed into what is only reserved for the sinful because he comes to take away the sin of the world. He decides to come as a savior first before he will come as the judge. He comes to save those who know they need saving, which means that when you look at Jesus right here in Luke's introduction of him as an adult, it's meant for us to understand that he came for the sick, not the well. He came for those who know they cannot save himself. And Jesus comes now, even now, to understand those who know that the inside of me can be so ugly and so filthy and so shameful and so humiliating. We have the good news of the gospel that we see this one identifies with us in such a way that no one else does. I mean, you think of your worst sins, you think of your darkest thoughts, God knows them to the T, and he decides to stand beside you next to them, not approving of them or lessening their severity or lightening the gravity of sin, but by saying, I am going to identify with this upon myself. I am with you in your struggle as close as I can be. Even the most shameful and humiliating things that you would be terrified of if anyone ever knew I am coming that near to you and that near to those things. This is the portrait of the mightier one to come, the greater one whom John is not even worthy to loosen this slipper of, for Jesus Christ comes to take our sin upon himself, to be immersed with us into the sinner's baptism, to identify himself with us and with our sin so closely that he might actually take that sin onto himself for our sake. And it's at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his unveiling, so to speak, that Luke is making this very clear. And so first, we have Jesus identifying with the sinful crowds. But Luke's purpose in the opening verses of this text is not only to show this solidarity with us, but even more so to show his solidarity within the triune God. The Jesus in the back of the line and the Jesus of the common crowds and the Jesus being baptized is here found praying to the Father. His unity with the people of iniquity does not come at the cost of his unity within the Godhead. Jesus keeps his communion with the Father as he begins to undertake the mission of saving sinners by aligning with the Trinity. This closely. Jesus is praying here at this very moment. And in the book of Luke, Luke takes pains to show how Jesus is always in communion with God the Father through prayer and especially highlighted in defining moments of his life. He's praying here at his baptism. He prays in choosing the 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6. He prays in the moments leading to Peter's confession in Luke 9 at the transfiguration when his glory is unveiled. What was he doing but praying? At the commission of his disciples in Luke chapter 10, we find him praying. In teaching his disciples how to pray, we find him praying. In suffering in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he would suffer and die for sin, we find Jesus deeply in prayer in Luke 22. And it is even hanging upon the cross itself. 
in Luke chapter 23, we find this picture of Jesus praying to the Father. Jesus would sometimes spend entire nights in prayer, and Luke is showing to us this utter unison that the Father has with the Son in undertaking this very difficult task of saving the sinful souls of humanity that the Son trusts the Father and we see here the heavens being opened. And it's not so that angelic soldiers can come out and teach the wicked world an eternal lesson that you don't sin against a holy God. That's not the lesson at this moment. But it is the Holy Spirit, God himself, who descends upon Jesus as a dove, a symbol of faithfulness and gentleness. Listen to Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. He writes, for a dove is the most meek and most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all of its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. That's how a dove loves a dove. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter on the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner and Christ converse together. That's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit, that he might bring the love of Christ and the sinner together. And we find the Holy Spirit himself divinely enabling and divinely approving of the mission of Jesus to save a wretched people, to bring them into a loving relationship with God, which they do not deserve. And it is God the Father seeing God the Son descend and responding to God the Son with great love in his eyes, declare to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Notice the second personal pronouns here. You are my beloved son. Not he's my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Not with him I am well pleased. Because it is as if God the Father is speaking to no one else other than to God the Son. And we are privileged to be in their private moment. That the primary relationship we are witnessing in the unveiling of the mightier one to come is a loving relationship within the Trinity. This is really God identifying with God and the unity shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that overflows into the Son, bringing himself to sinful humanity. Our salvation is the fruit of an eternal relationship within God himself. And so the heavens open, and the Father speaks, and the Holy Spirit descends, and the Son is baptized to identify with a sinful race. We have the Trinity working together for the salvation of me and the salvation of you because, brothers and sisters, it takes the entire Trinity to save even a single sinful soul. And it is not just Jesus who loves you, but the Holy Spirit loves you as well. It is not just God the Son who comes to save, but the Father who gave his only beloved Son for God so loved the world. This is Luke's thrust here. I mean, he doesn't even highlight that it was John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. 
nor does he bring to focus the crowd's response, but Luke wants us to see this Trinitarian relationship and effort in the Son identifying with us. You know, we sing songs about Jesus, we proclaim our love for him, but Luke is showing to us that even the Father sings songs to the Son because he loves the Son more than we love the Son. We want the power of the Spirit in our lives, and yet Luke shows us that the Son desires the Spirit, and the Spirit desires the Son and enables the Son as well. There is a, a fountain of love within the Trinity that we get to experience the overflow of. And if the overflow of that love is Jesus coming to save us by being identified with us in baptism, and even more than that, to die upon the cross for us, even as sin itself, if that kind of love is the overflow of Trinitarian love, then we begin to understand a little bit more of what awaits us when we are made perfect and can experience the love that exists within God for all eternity. And so we have in these opening verses of our text, Jesus' loving identification with the sinful crowd springing from Jesus' loving relationship within the Trinity where the entire Godhead is set upon saving you. We continue in verse 23, and we have 77 names here. And I'm, not sure, I'm sure I'll mispronounce more than a few of them. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of El Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliaki, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphazad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We come to Jesus' family tree, and it is a long list, a genealogy of 77 names which traces Jesus through the centuries of humanity to the very first person ever created in Adam who was the very son of God in the sense that God created him not from a traditional pregnancy but through the direct act of creation. 
This list is different from Matthew's genealogy in his book, and that could be because one of them traces Jesus' line through Mary and the other through Joseph. One is moms, one is dads, and even here we may get a hint of that, the supposed son of Joseph. Or it could be because one of them is strictly biological and the other is legal. There may have been a Leverite marriage where sometimes when a man died and he left a widow childless, there was a provision in the law that his brother could marry his widow and produce a son, and that son could continue his dead dad's line, even though the biological father was someone else. That's a suggestion as well. Maybe one genealogy is royal, the other is strictly family. I am not sure which one of these is best, but I am sure that we shouldn't throw out the entire Bible as being inaccurate because of supposed discrepancies in something like a genealogy where there are several options that are logical to explain the differences. But explaining those differences is not what I want to draw our attention to. We have a list here of 77 names, most of whom we know almost nothing about, all of whom who have lived and died or were no more, all of which had joys and sorrows, ambitions and plans, hopes and fears, have come and gone and now have passed on. We are part of a race of dying people who need a living Savior. And we feel the effects of a little of what it means that the wages of sin is death when we read a list such as this. And the human dilemma becomes even more evident when we do examine a few of the bigger names. We have the ark builder Noah, who was the only man on earth who really believed in God's holiness, who really took God at his word and believed in the reality of a judgment upon a sinful people who would not turn to God. And Noah took decades upon decades to build an ark. You want to talk about burnout? He endured decades upon decades of jeers and persecutions. When is that judgment coming, Noah? It's been 35 years. What you building there, Noah? Can you imagine your entire neighborhood making fun of you on the daily for your faithfulness to God and still enduring? Noah was a very godly man who found favor with Yahweh. And yet, having said all of this and being saved through those floodwaters and eventually coming to dry land, it is the same Noah who we find getting drunk and naked in the new world. We have Father Abraham, who had the bold faith of leaving family and home to follow God's direction, even when God didn't give to him the plan. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Basically, leave everything you know to a land that I will show you. You don't even know what that land is. Leave everything you know, and I'm going to take you to somewhere you don't know. Do you trust me, Abraham? And Abraham believed God and left everything he knew. And yet it is. When faced with danger, this same Abraham proved himself to be a habitual liar and a coward. We have King David, the shepherd, the ruddy handsome boy, the Goliath slayer with a sling and a stone who stood up to the Philistine giant when all the men of Israel's knees were knocking in fear, even their king. And yet this warrior stood up to him. And he has this rare combination of being like that and being musically talented. 
David's a psalm writer, the worship leader who wrote so much praise to Yahweh, and yet it is this same rare unicorn, this same David who falls into lust and then sexual assault and then murders a loyal friend for the cover-up involving others in his conspiracy and tangling others within his own sin. We have Jacob, the patriarch, a liar, a cheater, and a thief. We have Judah, the tribe of Judah, slave, traitor, and prostitute, hirer. We have these extreme highs and extreme lows, even among the best of the people here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've quoted this before, he says, we are as glorious as an angel and yet as dreadful as an ape. We are capable of building beautiful hospitals and we are capable of creating the most dreadful concentration camps. But this is the pattern and the dilemma which we have seen from the very first human, Adam, who could somehow walk in the perfect garden with God himself, shameless and sinless, and yet this same man could somehow prefer sin and prefer the creature to the creator that he would rather listen to a serpent than to Yahweh who had given Adam everything and still somehow desire forbidden fruit to joyful obedience, that as glorious as that first human being had been, dreadful sin characterized him more and more, and therefore his lineage more and more. And this genealogy is a story of humanity in that sense, that we are born, and we live, and we sin, and we die, and then the next generation comes and repeats the same old pattern. But what we see also in these very same verses are the promises of God given to those who do not deserve them. To Adam and Eve, right after they sinned, which would contaminate their entire progeny, God promises that the serpent would not be finally victorious, but that the seed of the woman, it's a virgin birth, seed of the woman, would bruise the head of the serpent. I promise you that, Genesis 3.15. To Noah, even though the entire race of humanity had been wicked to the core, and even the godliness among them. The godliest man among them proved himself to be a drunkard. God promises Noah in Genesis 8 and 9, I will never destroy humanity with a flood again. That's grace to Abraham. And, and it's not as if God were taken by surprise. Dang, I didn't know Abraham was going to turn out like this. I didn't know he's going to be unfaithful and a liar at times. He knew, and yet he still promises Abraham in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Somebody from your line, Abraham. There's going to be worldwide blessing. One from your lineage is going to bring this about that the children of Abraham and the children of faith might be as numerous as the stars in the sky. To David, he promises in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God already knew that as great of a king that David would be, he would never be that king. And King David had proven himself to be a king that took from the people for selfish gain rather than serve the people. And that is not the king that God desires to reign eternally. 
And so weaved throughout this genealogy, we have the human dilemma, no doubt, glorious as an angel and as dreadful as an ape, and yet weaved throughout this genealogy, we have the promises of God given to undeserving people that as we trace Jesus back through all these generations, even to Adam, the very first man, we find only now that the pattern is broken, for we have the one who is without sin. We have the one who will be our ark and lead us safely through judgment waters. We have the one who will not be a liar, the very one in whom all the families of the earth can be blessed. We have the one who will not take from the people and serve himself at cost to the people, but we have the perfect king who will not lust, lie, steal, murder, but will use all of his power and authority to serve a people like us who do not deserve to be served. We have the true and we have the better Adam. We have the Son of God who is conceived not by ordinary means, but by the direct creation of Yahweh through the Holy Spirit. And yet, truly God, he is intertwined and identified with sinful humanity, truly human. We have the seed of the woman born of the virgin who will crush the head of the serpent and redeem the entire human race who believes. We have in this introduction to a 30-year-old Jesus, the fulfillment of all promise, the fullness of all the covenants. We have the eternal Son of God, and yet we also have the Son of Man, identifying with the sinful crowds, and yet sent and endorsed and enabled and loved within the very triune God himself. Philip Ryken, who I grab a lot of this argument from, he writes this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ shows that he was born into the very humanity that he was promised to save. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Jesus is born, is baptized, is traced to every promise of God, and he has come to save us who have been separated by, from God by our sin and destined to be judged and immersed into eternal fire. But Jesus has been born into our fallen race so that he might rescue us from our sin. And brothers and sisters, may it be that we love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and with all of our strength, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your care and your affection. We thank you for the relationship that is within you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that as we see yourself send Jesus Christ out of love into this sinful world, we understand, we understand how much love exists within the Godhead. We pray, God, that by the Holy Spirit, you'd bring us close to Christ, that more and more you would give us eyes to see how glorious he is, how kind, how loving, how magnificent, that you would help us to understand more and more 
what a precious treasure he is, what a pearl of great price that everything in this passing world, or the dramas or ambitions or this or that, everything might begin to fade. Teach us to number our days, God. Teach us to love like you have loved us. Teach us the joy of obedience and knowing you. Would you use our church family in mighty ways unto your glory? We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.